Sally Harp, and this is the InfraMonster Podcast. Now, in today's podcast, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm recording this podcast as I drive across the lovely desert between uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Los Angeles, California. So right now, I believe I'm in Utah. The view is breathtaking. I'm helping my middle son relocate to uh, sunny Los Angeles from the heartland of uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, in today's podcast, what I wanted to talk about is lab data interoperability, clinical interoperability specifically, because there's a lot of activity right now with Shield and Livid and all these things that are happening when it comes to the ability to get lab results and, uh, and utilize them in an interoperable fashion at a large public health level, which is, is similar um, to a enterprise level, but obviously on a much grander scale. So first, let's talk about, <clears throat> once again, what we mean by interoperable. Interoperability can mean a lot of things. It can mean semantic interoperability where you're normalizing to a standard normative terminology like LOINC. It can mean um, syntactic interoperability where you're taking a message um, and being able to format to a way that you can unpackage it and make use of the data. Uh, canonical interoperability where the data is, is logically organized in a way that makes sense uh, so you can use it, which is slightly different than syntactic. And of course, physical interoperability, which is the easy part, which is getting the information from you to me, which is, should be the easy part. But when it comes to faxing and things like that, obviously, you know, I can get it to you, but it's still not physically interoperable if it's not actually data, but I won't climb up on that particular high horse. So um, now that we have kind of a rough high level definition of general interoperability, Let's focus in on labs. Now, let me start out by saying I'm not a clinician. I'm not a subject matter expert when it comes to the clinical aspects of lab data. Um, I am just a simple country programmer who's been working with lab data since 1987. And no, I, 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 I didn't do that while I was in vitro. I, uh, I was a functioning human adult. I know, I know, I have, despite my uh, youthful exuberance, I've been doing this for a while now. So. Um, lab data can be lumped into, into buckets. And let's start by taking microbiology and, and things that are like microbiology out of the picture. And let's just focus on analytical lab. So you might think that analytical lab is pretty straightforward when it comes to interoperability. If you can normalize to a normative terminology, um, you should be able to leverage that data. The challenge with analytical labs is, is a little more esoteric than that. And by the way, if anybody listening to this podcast wants to chime in or have another podcast to get into it in, in details or to, or to debate certain topics with me, I love that kind of thing. I'd be happy to do it. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm incorrect or if I'm off base, I'm the first person to admit that if it provided evidence to that point. So um, when you think about clinical interoperability for labs, one of the things we have as an advantage is we have LOINC. LOINC has been around a while. It's very comprehensive. It has essentially, um, I think, 14 axes that are, some axes have multiple axes kind of hidden within them. But the bottom line is there's a certain amount of specificity um, and granularity there. Um, they've put a lot of work into it. It's been around a long time, and it's a well-established standard for reporting and, uh, and providing kind of a reference anchor 
for lab analytes, especially if we stick with like general analytical lab, things like chemistry, hematology, things like that. <clears throat> so you'd think we have that hurdle overcome of having a common um, normative terminology that we'd be in great shape. And you're kind of right, because LOINC provides a lot of value. And we've put a lot of effort over the last decade to getting people to try to leverage and, and use LOINC. And don't get me wrong, there are some challenges because, you know, LOINC goes to great lengths to be comprehensive. And so sometimes the thing you're mapping to is very specific. And one of the challenges that people have struggled with is kind of the ontological one around LOINC. And, you know, what if I want to roll things up clinically? And what if I want to group things and do things of that nature? And that's not what LOINC is, at least not today. It has an ontology, but they don't really recommend using it, at least last time I checked. Um, and it's really just a way to kind of decompile the axes. But even in that, in that unofficial ontology that Regan Street provides with LOINC, it's still pretty cool. There's a lot of really cool things in there. And if you've never taken a look at it, um, it's, it's worth looking at for the synonymy and all the other cool little nuggets that are hidden within that. Um, and we could probably have a, uh, a podcast where we talk about that. If you'd like us to do that, let me know. So when it comes to lab data, there are different people with different opinions. And I'm just coming at this from a, from a pragmatic analytical engineering point of view. Because in the olden days, <clears throat> and maybe today, when I get lab data from somewhere else, my number one concern is I want to be able to take that lab data and I want to dis display it to the clinical person that is trying to make a decision about the patient. So a lot of the mapping that happens in EHRs today when it comes to lab data, external lab data, is I want to get it on the chart so that the provider can see it and factor that into their calculus when they're caring for the patient. But I think one of the things that's happening in public health and in enterprise health, for lack of a, a better term, is um, we're trying to use that data to do analytics and to look for patterns and to do things like AI and machine learning. And the challenge is if you're super granular with some of that data, well, you can't combine that data. You can't turn that data into information in motion, which um, when you start looking at especially this quantitative data as a vector, or you start trying to use it for things like inferencing or other reasoning um, use cases, it can be challenging because you have to kind of resort to value sets or you resort to if it's this or this or this or this or this because you don't have a way to reasonably combine it into a single compatible thing based upon the use case you're presented with. And there are a couple examples of this. Uh, so you might normalize a lab test, say for uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive or negative, and you have that test. But one of the things we may not have is a standard way of resulting that test. In fact, I said in a previous uh, podcast that, you know, we found there were 74 ways to say positive. And of course, that's a challenge. So the standardization of things that are not quantitative, that are ordinal, um, can be a challenge because then you have to say, well, if they say this, this, or this, or this, or this, um, and and that makes building the rules and making sure they're going to function appropriately can be a challenge. Now, when it comes to quantitative results, you have a similar problem. The first problem is, are they the same result unit? So, you know, you can have things that have properties 
where the property is a mass concentration, but the people doing the, the testing might use a different unit of mass concentration. Now, LOINC puts a lot of energy, in, and they've kind of established these properties, but most uh, laboratories that do testing don't really deal with the concept of property because it's inferred based upon the unit. So I have a lab test, and I'm going to say that it's, you know, nanograms per deciliter. I'm not going to necessarily point out to you this is mass concentration. I'm saying here's a unit. So if I've got one mass concentration unit, mass over volume, and you've got a different one, let's say your test, you're doing it in uh, pounds per gallon, which I know pounds is weight and not mass, but it's I'm giving a hy hyperbolic example. At some point, you have to have a mechanism for, for taking the test, which for all intents and purposes might be clinically equivalent, and bring them together by converting the value to a common base unit. In this case, let's say it's nanograms per deciliter. So the first stumbling block when you go to combine quantitative lab results is this stumbling block of getting them to a common base unit so that you can analyze them, trend them, and graph them um, using the same unit. And that's pretty straightforward. The other thing that's a little more esoteric is the method of the test. Because, you know, in some cases, the lab test itself, how it's performed, and you maybe even with the same unit, you might, you might interpret the result differently. So that may not always be the case, but when it is the case, it's important. So another thing you need to look at is, well, does the method matter in, in how I'm clinically evaluating this or how I want a reasoning algorithm to clinically evaluate this. And I'm really curious, I haven't spoken to a subject matter expert about this, but as an engineer, as somebody who, you know, understands a, a fair amount of uh, science, one of the things I run into every now and then is where people say, well, you can't combine these tests, the results, if they have different reference ranges. Now, I tend to believe that when it comes to a lab test, there are things that are contextual and there are things that are not. Things like, what were they eating? What time of day was it? Um, what's the age of the patient? What's the, the weight of the patient? Those things are all relevant. They're all relevant to the context of when the test was performed. But the result itself lives outside of that. Now, you might decide that I'm not going to combine things that have different contexts, but if I do a, um, I don't know, an albumin test on serum, and I get a result, regardless of the context, you could argue that the result is the result. If it's the same unit of measure, the result is the result. The context might factor into how I'm interpreting it, but the result is the result. It's this number for this unit. Now, um, when it comes to reference ranges, my interpretation of a reference range is that reference ranges are used by the people performing the test to decide how they're going to flag the test as normal or abnormal or you know low, high, panic values. And it might be based upon how they're looking at the, the tests relative to how they've calibrated the instrument that they're running it on. And of course, reference ranges often are also uh, specific to the age and gender and possibly 
you know, comorbidities or other factors going on with the patient. But the result is the result. And so the question is, if I get two lab tests from two different places and they have different reference ranges for the same patient context, should I combine or not combine those tests, the results into a single, um, a single vector? Now, I'm not going to, you know, put forth an answer to that question. I want, I'm really curious what other people think. Well, maybe I will put forth an answer to that question. I'll say that to me, I would think it's legitimate as long as the context is the same. And let's say there are no special circumstances. There's no time aspect. There's no, you know, there's no uh, post-dosage information. It's just a regular run-of-the-mill test. Um, same type of instrument or same methodology, let's say, um, same specimen type, but I'm getting it from two external labs and let's say it's a week apart and the labs for the same age and gender have different reference ranges. Now this is kind of a, 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 a thought problem, a, a, a hypothetical question. If the one lab's reference range says the value is low and the other lab's reference range would say that it's not low. So let's say one of the lab results is normal for both in both labs reference ranges, but it's low. The other result is low for the first reference range and normal for the second reference range. I know I'm making this really complicated without a whiteboard, but my question is, can I combine those results? Because some, I would say the answer is yes. I would be able to combine those results if you know I believe that both reference labs, both external sources are valid and they're doing a good job testing. They might have different interpretations of that result, but the result is a result. Because if the answer is no, I can't combine those results, then it's almost as if you can't com ever combine results. You can only combine, you can almost evaluate everything as an interpretation of a result and everything becomes an ordinal result at that point. We say it's low, we say it's high, which makes the whole concept of quantitative analysis and lab results kind of squishy if, if you can't combine those results. I think this is a relevant question because the more we move down towards this idea when you look at initiatives like SHIELD and LIVID of being able to combine things into a continuum, into a, a set of vectors relative to a patient or a collection of patients, there's this, there's this idea that I have to believe that I can trust the result. I have to believe that I can trust the quantitative result in context and make decisions based upon those quantitative results in context. If I can't, then the whole foundation of public health is, is in question, I would think. Or, or we have to mandate, much strict, more strictly mandate, things like reference ranges and how we calibrate lab instruments. So, I think that if we can agree that we can assume that the results are right, or correct and we assume that we can do base unit conversions and we can decide which context caused things to fall in or out 
then we could establish a meaningful way to combine data so that we can do analytics at scale. And I think those are some of the things we need to be able to do to, to do some of these public health initiatives that I think um, as, a, as a nation and as an enterprise, those are the things you got to kind of get your arms around so you know that you can trust, normalize, and, and meaningfully leverage this data that you're collecting from your partners out there doing work in the field. All right, so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about on this edition of the InfraMonster podcast as I make my way through the desert. Um, I appreciate you guys tolerating whatever road noise came through. If I can sneak this past the people that publish the podcast and uh, enjoy this little personal touch. Um, I look forward to your feedback. I would love to have a panel podcast where we talk about this very topic. So maybe I'm kind of poking the bear with a stick a little bit to get some people to come out of the woodwork and talk with me about this. Because I think, you know, in public health, as we see, you know, look at in the rear view or hopefully in the rear view at COVID and look to the future and how we can do a better job of biosurveillance, monitoring and understanding these patterns that we see. Um, I think getting our arms around something that should be solvable is going to be important. And to do that, we're going to have to answer some of these pragmatic questions and decide, you know, where we're drawing the line. Anyways, I am Charlie Harp, and this has been your In the Wild edition of the InfraMonster podcast. Thank you and take care.